I'm Vince, and I'm an alcoholic. And it is true, I am the husband of the friendly girl. (laughs) I'm a very good friend. Uh, The best, I hope. And the only one, I hope, now. But I want to uh, say thank you for inviting us to Hilton Head. Uh, We've both been here before. This is uh, top drawer in AA conferences. This is uh, right at the top. This is, uh, in order to come to Hilton Head, you must do seven church camps in Texas (laughs) before you get invited to Hilton Head. And I'm only, I I love Texas, as you're going to find out. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Excuse me, but it's, it's great to be here. And uh, thank you again for inviting us. I, uh, there's many old friends here. Uh, our friend George Welchel, who we knew for years and back in our group. And uh, God, all of the years uh, that we've known John and uh, Mary Emma and Keith and uh, Juliet and John and that Al-Anon, uh, Cindy. <laughs> Who's uh, and we know these folks for years, and it's so nice to be with them and get a chance to see them. We don't see each other all the time. Not enough. Not enough. And it's good to spend the weekend together. I'm honored to be with uh, Spec 4 uh, Sarah Walsh, back from Iraq, who served in the 1st Cav in the United States Army. A glorious and, and uh, storied division in our army. And I'm also honored to be with PFC James Hutchins, Headquarters and Service Battalion, MCRD Paris Island. And uh, I'm glad to be with all of the rest of you uh, also. <laughs> to you. There's some new people here tonight, uh, and I know more people than those that stood. Uh, And I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous and let you know that that's where you are tonight. (laughs) You're in AA, which is really dreadful, isn't it? I mean, dear God, it's come to this. Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Yes, it has. And we welcome you. And we know that if you're, let's say I know, that if you're anything at all like I was when I was new, you will, uh, well, first of all, if you're new here tonight, although we've never met you, we know all about you. (laughs) We know, for example, that this has been a bad year. (laughs) The end result of which is here you are in AA. Not what you'd planned on last January, I don't think. But here you are. And if you're anything at all like I was when I was new, and most of us, I suppose, uh, you are probably uh, utterly convinced down deep in your soul that you are not really alcoholic, that your case is different, and you're not really like them. And we would like you to know that if you feel that way, the very fact that you feel that way means you are precisely like us. (laughs) That is almost the requirement to be here, is to be utterly convinced that you don't fit and that it's all some kind of a cosmic mistake 
and yet here you are. And you will also, if you're anything at all like me, you'll find this confusing. None of this makes any sense. It's, there's no logic to any of this. It's, uh, for example, what, what do we have here? 900 people, 1,000 people, uh, all of which admittedly cannot manage their own lives, <laughs> but will be delighted to take yours on. <laughs> and hopefully you'll let them do it, because that seems to be the prescription, isn't it? to understand that your judgment about you is dreadful and that almost everybody else's judgment about you is better than yours. And if, you can, if you're that desperate and you can understand that, your chances here are geometrically better. They, you know, they improve right now by that one fact. Uh, I'll start. I'm going to tell you about my first AA meeting, which was a long time ago. It was in November of 1965, uh, which was a long time ago. In, I know, girls. I, I don't look that old, do I? I can't possibly, but I, I was only seven at that meeting. So, but it was in the basement of a Presbyterian church on a Friday night in Long Beach, California, in a section of Long Beach called the Los Altos section, which at that time, as John may or may not remember, was a kind of an upper middle class community. It was very nice. They were all, you know, uh, and, and the AA meeting there on Friday night was an event. It was a big speaker meeting. And in those days... There weren't that many meetings. There was, there was not a meeting on every street corner 24 hours a day, as it seems as though there is now. And this was a big deal. Everybody in the AA community in Long Beach, California, went to this meeting on Friday night in the basement of this church. And it was a social event, along with being an AA meeting. They dressed up. Boy, I'll tell you, they put on coats and ties. and Ladies dressed up. I mean, it was just, they looked good, and they sounded good, and they smelled good, and the overwhelming characteristic of that room, if you walked in there on any given Friday evening, was that no one looked like an alcoholic. They all looked too good. If someone were to say to you, you were in a room filled with alcoholics, can you pick one out? You wouldn't pick anybody out. You would have picked me out that first <laughs> night. I was there. If you were there that night, you would have picked me out. I had a filthy T-shirt and a ripped pair of jeans, and I just spent the previous five days in the Long Beach City Jail due to a series of unfortunate circumstances that were clearly not my fault. The <laughs> police department in Long Beach, California is fascist, turns out. And they had abused my civil rights on a constant basis, it seemed, in those days. And I ended up in that jail. And I ended up in the basement of this church on that Friday evening. And I sat in the back of the room up against the wall. And I should tell you, uh, I am Irish and Catholic and I'm from New Jersey. You've got a problem with that? <laughs> and I have difficulty with people from Texas. We have a chemistry problem, I think. And I sat next to this guy who was about six foot five, and he had on cowboy boots and a 10-gallon hat in his lap, and his name was Tex. And Tex wanted to hep me. That's what he said, boy, I'm going to hep you. <laughs> and I remember thinking, why don't you go hep somebody else? <laughs> Leave me alone. But he was going to hep me. And the first thing he did was he repeated to me in rapid succession all of the cliches, which are dreary, aren't they? I mean, stop it. I mean, easy does what, you know? And he finally put his arm around my shoulder and he said, I keep it simple. Thought I'll bet you do, Tex. 
I have absolutely no argument with that. And, he, and John was talking this afternoon. He put some pamphlets in my lap, and we have a pamphlet for everybody here. No matter what your aberration is, we have, we can cover your case. You know, there, there's a pamphlet here that will make you fit in. And on top of the pamphlets was the card with the 20 questions on it that John was talking about this morning. And they are. This is a test devised by the medical school at Johns Hopkins, who, in their infinite wisdom, have decided how alcoholic you are by the way you answer these 20 questions. And, the, and if you don't want to belong here, you must find a way to answer no. Because the more yeses you have, the deeper trouble you are in. And you don't have a lot of room, do you, John? If you answer one question yes, you may have a drinking problem. If you answer two questions yes, in fact, you do have a drinking problem. Three or more, you're an alcoholic. No wiggle room there. And I took this test for text because uh, that's what you do with old timers, incidentally, if you're new. Uh, if they give you a test, take it. And it, it doesn't mean anything, but uh, they'll treat you better, you know. And so I took the test for text, and I had about uh, 16 or 17 yes answers. Uh, I remember I answered, I, I answered no to the question, do you seek lower companions? I could not find any. You know, where the hell do you go after the long, I mean, to city jail to find a lower companion. And the meeting began, and they began precisely how we began here this evening. They read the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're new and you wonder what it is we have, that's what we have. And if you wish to recover here, it's required that you take them. The requirement for membership is simply a desire to stop drinking. The requirement for recovery is different. Uh, the requirement for recovery is you must take these steps. Now, I sat in that room, and I listened to these steps read, and I thought, oh, please, good grief. This is simplistic. I mean, I am the, I am the, the end product of eight years of Dominican nuns and four years of Jesuit priests. I have read Aquinas and Augustine, and I've been exposed to world-class theologians, and this is, I mean, prairie Protestant uh, uh, simplistic, uh, yeah. I mean, good grief. Uh, stop it. I mean, uh, I mean, I could see where it would work for you if you were uneducated and Protestant. Uh, but my case is clearly, I mean, clearly different. You, uh, This simplistic, uh, I mean, I could explain this to you if you'd like. Uh, Man's relationship with God is far more complex than this. This is uh, nonsense. Uh, you all walked around with this personal deity you had in your back pocket that got you parking spaces and uh, dishwashing jobs or whatever. You know, I mean, how nice it would be to be simple like you and to really be able to accept this uh, nonsense. So on some level, I dismissed these folks. I sat in the back of that room. I, I thought, you know, I'm in a room full of these people from the Southwest. I, I thought they were going to break it out into some hymn about bringing in the crops or whatever they do. Uh, <laughs> my case is clearly different. I, I really. So on some level, I sat in the back of that room and dismissed subconsciously these 12 steps. I said, I'm different. And the meeting continued, and there were several people who participated, and they were nice people, and they said innocuous things that clearly were inapplicable to me. 
And at the end of the meeting, I don't know how you celebrate. I guess you call them anniversaries here. And we're from California, so we're more flamboyant. We call them birthdays. And they had birthday parties for the alcoholics. I mean, good grief. Middle-aged people singing happy birthday to some moron who didn't take a drink for a year. And they had a cake with a candle on it. I mean, God, it's like something should take place at a mental institution, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) right before dance therapy, you know, you could have, after you've worked on your ashtray, you could come up and have birthday parties for the alcoholics. And they had several of these imbecilic parties and one in particular for this woman who was about 110 and sober forever. They had a fire on top of this cake. Boy, I'll tell you, the flames were licking the ceiling. And she got up here and she started to blow the candles out. And it was a, I didn't know whether the pulmonary disease would win or she'd get them out. She got them out and she got up here and she said her name was Phoebe and that she was an alcoholic. And then she said something about, did I want what she had? <laughs> Not tonight, Phoebe. I don't think so. And that was my first AA meeting. And I think you could safely say that I did not have a spiritual awakening. <laughs> Pretty clear. But I'll tell you what I did. I stayed sober for the next three years. And during that period of time, I didn't drink any alcohol, nor did I use any mood-altering chemicals whatsoever. And I stayed sober and busy in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And during that period of time, I did everything there was to do in AA. I got a sponsor. I set up chairs at meetings. I made coffee. I chaired meetings. I spoke at a young people's convention. I did everything there was to do in AA, except one thing. I did not take these steps. And as a result, my alcoholism got worse. And it got worse while I was sober and busy in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll bet you there's some people here tonight who are precisely in that shape. You've been here some appreciable length of time. And you're very busy here. And you're all involved with Alcoholics Anonymous. You develop a social life here. And you're busy in the fellowship of AA. But you have not taken these steps. And as a result, you're getting worse too. And you know it. And the way that you know it is you are surrounded by people who are getting better. And you watch them get better. And if you're like me, it drives you crazy. Because something is happening to them that is not happening to me. And I really don't know why. And I know it's for real. Because when people get better here, they wear it. It's all over them. It's in their clothes. It's in their face. It's in their eyes. It's in their persona. They have a sense of purpose. They're going somewhere. Their eyes light up. And I would sit there and watch one after another. People come in. After I'd been here, they'd go, boom, something would happen to them. And I think, there's another pixie. You know, (laughs) how can this be? And John mentioned it this morning. Did you ever feel that they had secret meetings where they met without you and talked about what it really was? See, it could not be this drivel. I mean, not really. And that's how I operated in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, sh- I and I, on the and I, wonderful things happened to me immediately. I got a wonderful job. I was in on the ground floor of a new profession. I will tell you a little bit about my background. I am a 
the fifth child in a family of five children. I have four older sisters. And I came along very late in my parents' life. My father was 50 and my mother was 45. And my youngest sister was 11 when I was born. And here came this boy in this big Irish family with all these girls. The prince had arrived. I will tell you. I mean, I got, I was doted on and I got everything I wanted. I mean, my sisters, it was during the war, they would dress me in sailor suits and soldier suits and pictures saluting the flag would make you throw up if you saw these pictures. It was just dreadful. And, but they took me all over with them and my father adored me. He just, God, here was this, you know, after all these girls, he's, there's this boy and he, he never said a cross word to me until the day he died. He just, he just really was uh, loving and kind and I, I had this, so this great family. I mean, uh, I, I talk about this often. My, my earliest recollections of Christmas are my father in my bedroom in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve. Uh, he would kneel beside the bed and wake me up and say, I just saw the sleigh leave. Let's go downstairs. And the whole family would go downstairs and celebrate Christmas at 3 a.m. because my father could not wait. <laughs> that simple. And that's how I grew up. He was a, a, an executive with the railroad and we were affluent and we, you know, uh, we were privileged and, and things were, I mean, just, I had everything. Uh, I should also, and, and to tell you that it's a loving family. There, no, Nobody else is an alcoholic in my family, just me, which is rank heresy, isn't it, in an Irish Catholic family. And they're all disgustingly normal, they, they're, and they're successful, and they're all married to the same spouse forever. You know, everybody is. And they're, they're, they're completed their educations. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, as far back as anybody can track in our family, through generations, there have been a total of four divorces. Three of them are mine. So I, <laughs> there is a statement about my family and me, okay? And so I don't. And I'm a. Uh, 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 that's the way that I grew up. I should also tell you that I am a, a product of the Roman Catholic Church. Can't get to be much more of a product of the Roman Catholic Church than I am. And I will tell you at the outset, I was not tortured by evil nuns uh, or molested by bad priests. None of that ever happened to me, and it never happened to anybody I knew. Now, it must have been some of it going on, but it never happened to me. Uh, maybe I wasn't appealing. I don't know. <laughs> some reason. But it for whatever reason, uh, it, it is not in my experience. So my alcoholism, and, and I was educated in, in a religious uh, tradition that uh, was not what I hear a lot in a Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I didn't get that God was uh, stern and punishing. I got uh, the Roman Catholic message to me was that God forgives, that everything is forgiven, and I thought that was a hell of a deal, let me tell you, if you had my life. So I don't, uh, my alcoholism is not the fault of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I like to go on record with that because it's not not their fault that I'm here. Not yours either, incidentally. Uh, if you're trying to hang it on them, I've got news for you. They will not accept responsibility. Uh, but that's what happened to me. Now, my parents died within one week of each other when I was 12. 
My father had a, a massive MI, a coronary heart attack, and dropped dead. And my mother, who'd had congestive heart failure for some period of time, died a week later. So we, it was kind of a tough thing. There's no doubt about it. But I was surrounded by this wonderful family and these four sisters who had now married and had beginning families of their own. But they all surrounded me, and they loved me, and they cared for me, and they took care of me, and there was money aside for my education. So all of that was taken care of. And, uh, but I began to get in trouble in school. I'm a very good student. I get A's. But I am what is known as a behavior problem. Anybody identify with that maybe in here? Uh, I got in trouble. And I always seem to get in more trouble than anybody else. By the time I got to high school, I went to uh, Jesuit prep schools, four of them, because I was thrown out of the one I was in every year, and my family would get me in the next one. And by the time I was a senior in high school and due to graduate, I had... Uh, I was at top of the class academically and a valedictorian of the class and due to give the address at graduation. The problem was graduation was in June. In May, I got drunk and stole a priest's car <laughs> and went joyriding. And not only did I not get to give the address at graduation, they told me, don't come. Don't come to graduation. As a matter of fact, if we ever have a reunion... Don't come. Do not come back. And they mailed me my diploma. So I went on to college in one of the upstate New York at one of the very best uh, schools in the country and uh, spent every semester in undergrad school on disciplinary probation in the 60s. <laughs> you know how hard that was? That was not an easy task. And I was drunk all the time. Just all the time. And in the middle of my senior year, uh, we went on some fraternity brothers. We went down to Manhattan on a long weekend to party, and we got drunk. And uh, I woke up, and it was Thursday. And they had all gone back to school on Sunday night. And I found myself on 45th Street in Manhattan uh, with a young lady, which was I won't go into here, but it was a very uh, unfortunate uh, set of circumstances and I didn't have any money and I called my family for some money to send me back uh, to get me up uh, back up to Cornell and they uh, put their foot down they said no we're not going to give you any more money not right now we've had enough of your behavior you get back to school on your own it would be a great lesson for you and if you get back to school on your own and buckle down we'll send you some money well, I had this sense of entitlement, as you can imagine by now, and I went into this rage of how they could possibly refuse me anything. And so I decided to show them who was captain of my ship, and it was me. It wasn't them. So I went over to Grand Central Station and joined the Navy. I took the test, took the physical, and joined the Navy. I left the, uh, an Ivy League university in the second semester of my senior year with a 3.8 GPA in chemistry to join the Navy. <laughs> and I found myself uh, being on a train going from New York to the Great Lakes Naval Station outside of Chicago. For, and I thought, you know what? I've made a mistake. <laughs> I have really made a mistake. And I went to this chief, this Navy chief, and I said, 
you know, I have a paper due uh, back at school, and I've really made a bad mistake. And he said, uh, I'll tell you what, kid, you're in the Navy. And he was right. I was in the Navy. And the train stopped somewhere in, uh, outside in Pennsylvania somewhere, and I could get off and make a telephone call. And I decided I had an uncle who was powerful in politically in the state of New Jersey, and he had a lot of power. And so I called him, and I thought, well, he'll get me out. And uh, I got him on the phone, and I said, I, uh, I made a bad mistake. I've joined the Navy. And there was this long pause. And he said, our Navy? <laughs> demonstrates where I was. You know what I mean? That, that, and he said, I think, he said, you know what? He said, I think it's the very best thing you've ever done. And he said, I'm not going to help you at all get out of the Navy. He said, I think that's fine. He said, I think you couldn't have done anything better. That isn't the answer I expected or wanted. And I found myself at the Naval Station in Great Lakes in boot camp. And that was, I mean, good grief. I mean, they, they told me something about making your bed. And I said, I have sisters. You know, I don't know how to do this. This is a, But I learned. And uh, one of the things they do in the military, as our friends will attest to, the first thing they do is they give you tests. You take a lot of tests. And if there's one thing I do well is I take written tests very well. And so I took these tests, and they called me into this commander's office after a couple of weeks, and they said, your testing is uh, exceptional, and we have an offer for you. We think that perhaps uh, this would be a good thing for you. Uh, we have a new program in uh, nuclear weapons technology, guided missile technology specifically. We'd like to send you to Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Sandia Corporation and train you in guided missile technology. And I thought, wow, this, if you have to be in the Navy, this sounds exciting, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. And uh, I was young, and, and that you know, it sounded like a very exciting thing. Then they gave me psychological testing <laughs> and uh, rescinded their offer. Uh, they, <laughs> they changed their mind. And uh, the end result was, since I was on course to go to medical school, they said, well, you can go to, you can be a Navy corpsman. We'll send you to Navy hospital course school. You'll be a corpsman. And so I went through Naval Hospital Corps School and graduated at the top of the class, did very well. And they decided to send me to a more advanced school uh, that it, it turned out to be the very first physician's assistant program at uh, U.S. Naval Medical Center in Bethesda. And it was, uh, they called it in those days independent duty school where they sent corpsmen where there were no doctors anywhere. And, and so the training was far more sophisticated. And uh, I went through that program and did very well. I loved medicine, by the way. And, uh, did extremely well. The plan was to go to medical school eventually anyway, and this was almost the equivalent. It was a very rigorous program for two and a half years, and it was a, and I'd already had the prereqs. I'd had all of the chemistry and all of that, so it was almost all clinical, and it was uh, just, you know, really a, a great program. And toward the end of that program, they called me in, and this captain said, we think you're a prospect for officer's candidate school. Uh, we think there's an opportunity for you to go to Newport, Rhode Island and go through OCS and get commissioned an ensign in the Navy. And I thought, now that's, if you've got to be here, I had to give them a couple more years. That's a great idea. So they gave me $500 to buy new uniforms and 30 days leave. <laughs> now that was a bad combination, as it turned out. Because I ended up on the 29th day 
in Boston with no money and no uniforms and due to report the next day to OCS. And so one of my brother-in-laws flew up from New York and bought the uniforms, sobered me up, and deposited me at the Naval Station in Newport at Officers Candidate School. And that is a controlled environment, and I did very well in OCS. Completed OCS, got commissioned an ensign in the United States Navy, an officer and a gentleman, and got a set of orders to, of all things, the Marines. <laughs> Dear God, I mean, <laughs> I got orders to the 3rd Marine Division on Okinawa. And I thought, whoa. I mean, I wasn't even ready for the Navy. <laughs> the Marines. I mean, the real Marines. And I got over to Okinawa, and I reported in the 3rd Marine Division as a medical administrative officer, and they couldn't find a job for me. So they put me in this officer's club on the northern end of the island and forgot about me. And I forgot about them. It was, it was worked out just fine. And, and my duty consisted of uh, getting up every day about noon and reporting to the cocktail lounge in the officer's club for duty. And I would drink Hagen uh, Hague Pinch at 60 cents a pop. I mean, you really can't beat that. That's uh, just genteel living. And it was fine. I began to really like the Navy. Uh, I, you know. <coughs> and that went on for a while. And then pretty soon they put another guy up there. And he was a surgeon at a Temple University. And they, he was a bad drunk. And they didn't want him around patients. So they stuck him up in this officer's club. And uh, he and I bonded. Yeah, we became uh, spiritual brothers. And uh, we both got up every day at noon and reported to the cocktail lounge of the old club and drank. And uh, pretty soon, uh, we forgot we were in the service. We grew our hair long, grew beards. Uh, we wore sandals and shorts and uh, lost track of all our uniforms after a while. Couldn't find out where the hell they were, you know. And uh, then one day, uh, one fateful day, uh, this Marine Corps second lieutenant came to that officer's club to give us some very... Astounding news. It seemed as though the Bird Colonel, the uh, commander of the 5th Marines, uh, who we were technically attached to, was having a dinner party for all of the officers in his command, and we must attend. Now, this was not good news. Uh, we didn't like this news at all, uh, and because we weren't noticed. Nobody knew who we were, and we liked it that way, quite frankly. But we had to go get haircuts and shave and dig up some uniforms and shine up and show up to the colonel's dinner party. And there were tables all around the room, and we tried to be as unobtrusive as possible, and we sat at a table over by the door. And uh, I could see the colonel's eyes roaming the room. And all of a sudden, it, he looked right at us. And I said to Melman, I said, Douglas, this is bad. <laughs> and then I could see this major come trotting over, saying, the colonel would like to see you. This is real bad. And we went over, and the colonel said, who the hell are you guys, uh, first of all? said, you are two officers in my command. I've never met you. What do you do? And we had a very vague kind of an answer. And the major said, well, one of them's a doctor. I don't know what the hell the other guy is, but they, you know, they uh, live in the officer's club. He said, they what? He said, they live in the officer's club. And the colonel said, give them a job. So we were put in charge of venereal disease control for the island of Okinawa. 
that was our job. And what would happen was uh, these Marines would get gonorrhea and syphilis and, uh, I mean, they'd get hideous uh, disease that was only seen in textbooks, uh, some of them, I'm sorry, but they got a disease called lymphogranuloma venereum that was clinically extinct. And I don't know how the hell they ever got it. I used to tell them, you know, where'd you get this stuff? You know, I mean, God, you, they haven't seen this since the Renaissance. You know, we, these bugs don't exist. Where did you get them? And our job was to go out into the villages to the bars and find the young ladies who were spreading this cheer and make sure that they were treated. So, you know, so therefore, what the job turned out to be is we rode all over Okinawa in a Jeep every day from bar to bar. So we did. And we had the power to quarantine these bars. So we drank Chavez Regal and Hagen Hag for free all over Okinawa. And it turned out that, again, the Navy and the Marine Corps was okay. Yeah, it was not a problem at all, as it turned out. And uh, time went by, and we came back to the United States, and uh, we left the service, and uh, and we did some other things. And it's not all fun and games. We did. I want you to know that we did some other things in the military. We, you know, we uh, made forty-mile hikes and things with the Marines, and we could have ridden in a jeep, but we didn't. We walked with them, so you'll know we were not uh, totally unsuitable human beings, but we did. And we came back to the United States, and we got out of the military, and he went back up to uh, Temple, where he completed his residency and uh, surgery and cardiovascular surgeon. And today he is a cardiovascular surgeon in Philadelphia who's not yet been to AA. So I guess if you need a bypass, stay the hell out of Philadelphia. I suppose. <laughs> End of that story. I went back up to Cornell and finished my... Uh, Final semester in undergrad school, and uh, spent the number of ni- summer of 1963 as a freedom rider in Mississippi, which was drunk, which was a, a colorful experience uh, to say the least. And I got out of there alive, and uh, was going to go to medical school, but got rejected because of social problems that they felt I had, and so I didn't get accepted to medical school, and I became very confused. And I didn't know quite what to do. And when I'm confused, uh, I know only know one thing. Get married. Uh, it's always the answer to confusion for me. And so I married a, a girl that I'd known. She was a Navy nurse. And we got married, and she was a lovely girl, and she deserved a far better fate, uh, believe me. And she immediately got pregnant. Which Men always say that like it's done independently, don't they? Uh, yeah, right? Yeah. I helped. But she got pregnant, and uh, we we ended up coming out to Southern California, and I got tentatively accepted to med school at SC to uh, go to med school, but I had to behave myself for the summer, and I uh, we moved in with her parents, who I'd never met. I barely knew her, let alone her parents. <clears throat> and we moved in with her parents, and I got a stopgap job for the summer as a bartender, which was, you know, you can imagine how that turned out. I'm coming home at 4 o'clock in the morning, drunk and and in various stages of clothing missing and, you know, just not good. And uh, they decided that uh, that was enough of me and they threw me out and she did too. And I found myself on Bolsa Avenue in Santa Ana with a lot of Samsonite luggage and no money. And I needed a job for the rest of the summer, so I got a job as an ambulance driver in Orange County. Now, I'm a blackout drinker. So the ambulance calls were sometimes quite exciting. Uh, 
you know, I would come out of a blackout in the ambulance with the lights going and the siren on, and I have to say to my attendant, uh, "Where are we going? You know, <laughs> where are we going?" And the crowning glory of that career was one night, and I came out of a blackout in Newport Beach, driving around a cul-de-sac uh, with all the lights going, and uh, I didn't know why I was there. I was going 10 miles an hour around this cul-de-sac. You know, you just can't get out of it. You know. And, and, the beacon and the lights are shining in these people's bedroom windows and they're all coming out on the porch in their pajamas watching this ambulance go slowly around this circle. And they had to send a police car in to lead me out, like following out. That's how I got out of that cul-de-sac. And uh, I lost my job over that. And I lost my driver's license, as you well can might imagine. And uh, I ended up, and that's the package I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's who I was when I got here. And in, uh, in the late 60s, a, a new job opened up in uh, civilian medicine, a new profession, the physician's assistant profession. And I became the third licensed PA in the state of California, sober and alcoholics anonymous, and went to work in an emergency room in East L.A., nights. And that was some place, I will tell you. And I was the triage doc in that emergency room. I was really in charge. There were doctors went to bed, and I did it. And it was exciting. It was really exciting. And I was well-trained. And it was rewarding in every way. And it was just really something, except I wasn't going to meetings. And I hadn't taken these steps. And I met another girl, a beautiful girl, the daughter of a longtime sober AA member, and we got married. She went to Al-Anon. And we were just so cute. I mean, we really were. Uh, I was in on the ground floor of a new profession, and she was beautiful. She was in Al-Anon. And, I mean, great things were going to happen. For Every group has a couple like that, don't they? I mean, great things are going to happen. Except nobody had taken these steps. And there was no recovery. And I would go in this emergency room at night, and I would get depressed. And I would get inadequate. And I would get these overwhelming emotions and feelings of not being up to the task. And there wasn't any recovery. And so there was no recovery to deal with depression. But I have a superb medical education. So I know how to take care of depression. Dexedrine. <laughs> 15 milligram spantules work best. And by the time I was through with those, I was taking six or seven of them a day. Now, anyone that knows anything about amphetamine abuse will understand that's got you moving right along. I tell you, whatever you're doing, it will be in a hurry. But there's a problem with that, and that is long about the sixth or seventh day when you've not slept nor eaten, and your hair stands up on end like that, and your eyes are dilated out over here, and you always look as though you've just witnessed an axe murder. You know, that's who you look like. And you show up in the emergency room to help the sick. And it does not look good, I will tell you. The guy you're relieving never wants to go home. He's always saying things like, Vince, Vince, you need something to eat. When have you slept last? But thank God for medicine, because there's a drug for that, right? And that drug is called Demerol. Oh, everybody, you all know what Demerol is, don't you, huh? Demerol is a uh, 
I'll tell you something that's secret. It's not a narcotic. I'll bet you think it is. It's a synthetic. But don't worry about it. It's academic. It's, you know, it will take care of you. And I began to use Demerol in the emergency room to get off the amphetamine. And the only problem with Demerol... But before I do that, I want to say something else because it's AA. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have to make this clear if you're new. In my opinion, uh, it's informed opinion, but it's my opinion. Alcoholism and narcotic addiction are different. They are not the same. So everybody knows that. And the difference is this. Narcotics are addictive. They all come from opium. Everything comes from opium. And they're addictive. Heroin, morphine, dilaudid, it's all the same thing. All comes, it's all addictive, and it's addictive for everybody. You inject morphine or heroin intravenously, you will be addicted, period. Physiologically and psychologically, and you don't even need to have an addictive personality. You will be addicted. That is not true with alcohol. Turns out, nine out of ten people who drink alcohol do it with impunity. They're social drinkers. They never come to AA. They don't wreck cars. They don't go to jail. They don't wreck families. They're not divorced. They are social drinkers. Now, I don't understand them. They say say things like, uh, no more for me. Uh, I'm driving. Really. Well, I'd love to have another, but my wife's waiting dinner. Going home. Are you going home? Are you? I'm going to Las Vegas. <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. And that's the difference. So they're not the same. I, I, on the other hand, I've never met a social heroin user. <laughs> I don't think they exist. Now, many here have done both, and, have, and you're welcome. I mean, if, but to function here, you must be an alcoholic. Whatever else you did is like an added benefit, you know, kind of... <laughs> But in order to function here, you must be an alcoholic. But at any rate, so that out of the way. Uh, the other problem with Demerol is people care about where it is. I mean, really, you, the, they get so upset. <coughs> Excuse me. They open the narcotic drawer in the morning, and all the dope is gone. <laughs> and they say things like, Vince, where's the Demerol? And I have to say, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's here a minute ago. Yeah. Nobody likes that, let me tell you. And finally, the people who are really care about Demerol are the Medical Quality Assurance Board, the state of California. They care. You think we care? They care. And they showed up one night. And, and uh, in those days, you must understand, too, we were unenlightened. So there were no diversion programs or... Uh, programs for impaired physicians. You know, that didn't that came much later. The only program they had was you're under arrest and we want your license. That's the program. And they charged me with a felony appropriating narcotics for my own use and uh, uh, reduced it to a misdemeanor and I didn't certainly didn't have to go to jail, but they guy lost my medical license and ended up spending the summer of nineteen seventy two living in an apartment by the airport in Los Angeles, drinking one half gallon of vodka a day. I don't have to tell anybody in this room about that kind of drinking. You know all about that. You vomit bile, and you don't. You look at a clock, and if it's 9 o'clock, is that a.m. or p.m.? You know, is it morning or evening? 
and you lose 30 pounds and you sometimes have mini seizures uh, and that's the way you go through that summer and, uh, and that's the way that I lived in that summer and I came out of a blackout uh, and my wife of course left uh, they that one gone too she took everything they all do don't they 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 take it all uh, and I found myself in Newport Beach and I don't even remember how I got there. I don't remember to this day can't tell you how I got to Newport Beach or why I was there but I was on a bench by the uh, by the Balboa Peninsula, right by the by the water, and I'm in a th- suit much like John is tonight, three-piece suit, a white shirt and a tie, impeccably dressed, and and uh, here I am, and I don't remember to this day how I got there, uh, and I had some money, but very little money, and, and some luggage next to me, and uh, apparently I decided to go to Newport, and I knew that I needed some kind of a job because I didn't have a place to live and have a job, so I went through the Orange County newspaper and I found a job as an apprentice embalmer for a mortician in Costa Mesa, which was, good God. Uh, if you knew when you need a job, do not do that. It's a really dreadful job. Uh, it paid $85 a week and a bachelor apartment over the room where they keep the caskets. So you only one entrance in and out, so you have to walk through that casket room in the morning with a hangover. And they had some recording of chimes and birds chirping. And I think, oh, you know, I got it was just grotesque. And uh, I got in an argument with this guy and stole his hearse and got drunk. And I got drunk and then stole his hearse. And I ended up uh, coming on September the 20th, 1972, coming out of what I hope is my last blackout ever driving the wrong way on Pacific Coast Highway in Newport Beach in a stolen hearse <laughs> with a young lady next to me who I do not recall meeting who was uh, screaming at the top of her lungs. And I remember thinking, I've done it again. I, uh, you know, I don't know how I'm uh, psychologically disposed to uh, choose these neurotic women because <laughs> all of these women in my life end up like this. You know, they end up... And, there, and I told her, I said, you know, you're really unstable. And you... <laughs> You should get some counseling. And that was September the 20th, 1972. And I haven't had a drink of alcohol or used any mood-altering chemical from that date to this. And if, uh, and it's a big deal for me, for sure. But if you would have materialized in the back of that hearse uh, and said, here's your future, I, it was astounding. I would not have believed you. You would have said, today, you're going back to AA. And for the next 34 plus years, you're not going to drink and you're not going to use any. And your experience in Alcoholics Anonymous is going to be completely different. And it will be different because for the first time in your life, you're going to be desperate enough to take actions you don't believe in and direction from people you do not like. And as a result, something will happen to you that is inconceivable you will begin to recover in Alcoholics Anonymous. I would not have believed you. But I went that day to the Alano Club in Costa Mesa, California, which is a disgusting hovel. Uh, you know, it's a dreadful place. I mean, long for America tables with the out-of-work Texas plumbers who, you know, <laughs> just dreadful, god-awful place. And, uh, but I had nowhere else to go. And so I got all my belongings from the mortuary, 
he was upset. Uh, I brought his hearse back to him, but he was very unkind and didn't understand my borrowing it. And he had thrown my clothes out the window of the apartment over the casket room. And I found myself at 6 a.m. in this blacktop parking lot of this mortuary with all my clothes strewn all over and thought, I really need to make a move here. You know, I really have to uh, come up with an idea. And the best idea I had was the Costa Mesa Alano Club. And that's where I went. And I sat at the coffee bar and I had some coffee. And I, I would like to tell you that... Uh, I went to an AA meeting there that noon, and something it wasn't—it was terrible, just terrible, just terrible, awful meeting. And uh, I went to a meeting there that evening, which was worse. And uh, the manager let me sleep on the sofa, so I didn't have anywhere to go. And uh, the next day, I rustled up some money somehow and rented a room on, in Costa Mesa for $11 a week. You know what $11 a week rooms are like? They're un unbelievable. There, and I w went into this awful place and thought I cannot live I've never lived in how could I ever live in a place like this I'll have to be here for two or three weeks till I can figure something out two years later when I moved out of that room it was a whole different story it was a completely experience I could not have foreseen uh, and I spent my first two years of sobriety in Orange County in the Newport Beach area and if you would have asked me on any given moment during that two year period of time how are you doing I would have told you, my God, it's, I'm awful, just awful. I've lost my medical license. I have no profession. I have no career. I, have, I, I lost jobs that were unbelievable. I lost a job as a gas station attendant for being incompetent. You know how hard that is? I mean, I lost a job as a $1.87 an hour drill press operator in a machine shop where you walked in in the morning and sat on a stool and they wheeled a cart up with copper plates in it. And you'd take a copper plate and you'd put it under the drill and pull the handle. Then you would take the copper plate and put it over here. That was the job. I managed to put the hole in the wrong place on about a thousand of these copper plates one day. And the foreman, who was very kind to me, said, "I, you know what, son? He was from Texas, Dallas somewhere. And he said, I got to let you go, boy. I always call you boy. I got to let you go, boy. He said, too bad. I can see you're a real trier. <laughs> yeah, he did. He said, but you're really not quite bright enough to do this kind of work. And I said, bright enough, bright enough. I said, you redneck moron. I said, I, I'm a graduate of Cornell University. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I'll tell you what, boy. You ought to go on back there and take the course in drill press operations. <laughs> He was right. You know, he was right. And I remember that day going back to that dreadful room I lived in and uh, some mail had caught up with me and one was a letter from uh, a physician in upstate New York inviting me to join a committee for my college class reunion. I remember reading that letter and thinking, dear God, the incongruity of my life. How could that be? How could I go from there to here? How can that happen? How do I answer that letter? I can't make it this year, Dr. Medoff. I just lost my job as a drill press operator. I mean, it, it, it is unbelievable. You can't, it can't happen. And, but that's where I was in early 1973. And I remember one night they had a big meeting down at the uh, peninsula in Newport Beach in the Ebel Club. And I don't know if you remember that, John. It was a great meeting, a big fancy meeting. They all pulled their boats up and tied them up outside and it, very affluent group, and, uh, and me, who 
was right at the bottom of the barrel, but I would go to this meeting. And they were all very kind to me. They, they were great people. But uh, And I went down there this rainy night. I'll never forget it. In February of 1973, and the, uh, the speaker that night was who my wife mentioned last night, Norm Alpe, who was Now, Norm Alpe was, uh, let me tell you about him. This guy was, uh, if Frank Capra made a movie about AA, Norm Alpe would be the speaker. And Jimmy Stewart would play him, okay? He was just a magnificent, all-American, nice guy, you know, average guy. And there was nothing fancy about his talk. It was all, you could give it, if you listen to Norm Alpe speak, you could give his talk word for word because he says the same every time. But the music of Alcoholics Anonymous, you listen to Norm and you've heard him a a thousand times and you know everything he's going to say. But every time you hear it, it was as though this is the first time you've heard it. And I've come to understand that as the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's he certainly had it. And he was great that night. But I went back to that room and I, I, I had to walk back in the rain and I had bronchitis and I had a fever and I didn't have any medical insurance and I didn't know how the hell to get an antibiotic. I was, you know, really sick. And I got in and I thought, my God, how can this be? And I got into this terrible room. And I did something so stupid. I can't believe I ever did it. I got on my knees beside the bed in that terrible room and said a prayer, a prayer of utter desperation. I mean, had nothing to do with Aquinas or, you know, it was just, God, please help me. I am afraid and I am alone and I can't make it anymore. And I believe that my recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous began that night. I didn't know it then, and I didn't know it for a long time. But that's when I think my recovery began. And I remember along about that time in that Alano Club that I went to every morning now for coffee and donuts, breakfast, nutritious. Uh, And there was a guy that hung around that club that was, he was in the floor covering business. He was a one-man operation. You know, every AA club has one of these guys where he just is an entrepreneur. He, he runs down to Lido Isle in Newport Beach and he sells all these, these wealthy people floor covering. Then he runs up to the factory and he gets it and he runs back and installs it. You know, run typical AA club guy. And his name was Clarence. And he was from Texas, as it turned out. <laughs> but he said to me, how would you like a job? You can be my gopher. I'll pay you $10 a day and provide your meals. Sounded like the presidency of General Motors to me. I mean, my overhead was low, I will tell you. I went to work for Clarence as his gopher. And I would go and carry his tools and carry the wood and the carpet and the, you know, did everything he asked me to do. At the end of the day, we would end up in a Marie Callender's in Newport Beach, and he would buy me dinner and give me a crisp $10 bill, and, a, and I would go to an AA meeting. And it was a... I be, began to come alive, and I don't know why, because he would ask me. My life was terrible. I mean, look at look at where I was. I mean, it was unspeakable. But something was happening inside of me, because I'd continued to pray, and I continued to ask for help. And I remember one one day in particular. It was in June of that year, and I got my ten dollar bill and had dinner with Clarence, and found myself down by the by the island, Balboa Island, watching the sunset. I don't know if you've ever seen the sunset in Southern California over the Pacific, but it is in fact a spiritual experience. And, uh, and I bought myself a frozen banana. 
And I stood there eating that frozen banana, watching the sun go down over the Pacific. And something inside of me said I was going to be all right, that I didn't have to drink and I didn't have to use any kind of a chemical whatsoever, and that I would be okay. And it was a spiritual experience. And, uh, and life went on, and I began to stay sober for a couple. I got two years of sobriety, and I could not focus. I couldn't get a career going. I couldn't get. I didn't know what to do, and I, I knew I, and I didn't have a sponsor really, and I needed to get one. And I knew who the sponsor had to be, and I didn't like the idea. Uh, this guy was uh, crazy. Uh, he was 16 years sober, and he was insane. Uh, and he was a big speaker all over AA, and he. He'd carry this coterie of people with him, and they'd get his coffee and save his seed. He was just really a pain in the ass. You know, I didn't like him at all. I didn't like this guy at all. But he had, apparently, this amazing capacity to help the losers in AA. I mean, people would get him for a sponsor, and they'd join this fascist AA group on the west side of Los Angeles, and their lives would come together. And I couldn't understand why that would happen. The dregs of humanity from Orange County would go to this guy. And they'd come back, transformed. I remember one guy, tank top red the biker. This guy was despicable. He had matted red hair and all of his teeth out. And he carried a pint of Canadian club in his back pocket. And he drank in the meetings and wanted to kill people. You know, that's what he did. And, that's, and I used to, used to see red in the meeting. i say, oh, no, God, please don't hurt me, red. Not tonight. And... Red disappeared off the face of the earth. Nobody saw him. Rumor was he got this guy for a sponsor and he went to West L.A. and nobody saw him. And six months later, I was in a meeting in Newport Beach and somebody nudged me and said, hey, there's Red. And I turned around and, uh, my God, here we, I said, where? I don't see him. They said, look closely. And there he was in the back of the room, except he was clean shaven and he had a haircut and all his dental work had been done. And he was in a blue blazer, gray slacks, and penny loafers. Sitting in the back of the room. And they called on him to talk. And he got up to the podium and he said his name was Red and he was an alcoholic. And that six months prior to that, he had uh, made his first child support payment in 10 years. And he, to, next week, he was going to vote in the presidential election for the Republican. I mean, <laughs> Red pushed you right over the edge, I'll tell you. You know, I thought, I got to get this guy. You know. So I called this guy and asked him to help me. By now, I'd acquired some material possessions. I had a uh, 1964 red Chevrolet convertible with no brakes and a hole in the top. And I used to drive that to meetings in Newport Beach. And as soon as I would pull into the lot, everyone would immediately get into their Mercedes and BMWs and put them on the other side of the lot. <laughs> so they would always say things to me like, do you have insurance on that car? <laughs> I hadn't had a driver's license in three years. Why the hell would I have insurance? It's kind of... A, redundancy but that's what I did and, and uh, I drove this old car up to this mission on Skid Row and asked this guy to help me and I'll never forget what he said he said I will help you on one condition that you can accept the very simple proposition that your best judgment about you is awful and that my judgment about what you ought to do is infinitely better than yours and if you will do everything I suggest you do without debate and that's important in your case no debate. I will help you. Well, I was just desperate enough that day to make that unholy pact with the devil. <laughs> I agreed to do that. And the first thing he did was he looked outside at my car and he said, do you have insurance on that car? And he said, you don't have a driver's license either, do you? And he said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to move into this mission and live here. I said, what? 
He said, I want you to, I said, I live in Newport Beach. He said, I want you to move into this mission and live here. And I want you to come down to my office every day and I want you to put on your three-piece suit and uh, I'm going to give you an allowance. I'm going to give you $8 a day. I want you to go outside and catch the bus that runs up Wilshire Boulevard, get a handful of transfers. And every time you come to a hospital or medical facility, I want you to get off the bus, go in, speak to the administrator, tell them that you've lost your license, but now you're sober and free from narcotics for two years and Alcoholics Anonymous, and you need help getting your medical license back, and you need a job. I thought, that is the most ridiculous, preposterous, stupid. I mean, I could have come up with that. <laughs> but I said, okay. And... Uh, I'm, I did what he said. And he said, in that car, incidentally, you don't have insurance and you don't have a license, so I'm going to park it in front of my house and give me the keys. I said, give you the keys? That's my car. And he said, yes, but uh, I said, why should I give you the keys? And he said, I'll tell you. It's because law-abiding citizens such as myself should be free to drive on the city street safe from morons like you. <laughs> How do you argue with that? You know, so I gave him the keys. And my car was parked in front of his house in Venice. And uh, I lived in this mission. And I did what he said. And every Saturday we played softball and volleyball up there. And I'd get to go up and visit my car. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever parked a car in Venice by the beach in California, but uh, it decomposed. Uh, <laughs> the idea was I would get a job and in insurance and get my land and we'd all work out. But it didn't take, it took longer. I was in that mission for eight months. And I, it didn't, what he said was not true. It never worked out. It didn't happen. But I did what he said. I went to the, you know, I did everything he said. And every Saturday I'd go up, and there my car would be with another piece missing. One time the entire top was gone. And then one time the entire steering column was gone. Who would want a steering column out of a 1964 Chevrolet? Missing, like the shell of a car. It was a metaphor for my life. Uh, and then one Saturday there was nothing left but an oil spot. Which was, you know. And every, all these guys that would play softball up there would gather around the car every week, too, and they'd laugh, you know, and they'd say, Hey, Vince, look at your car. The wheel is gone. What do you think of that? And they'd laugh. I didn't laugh. They laughed. And in addition to that, I, I was riding this bus up Wilshire Boulevard, and I did what he said, and I'd been to every medical facility and hospital between downtown L.A. and the San Fernando Valley five times in that eight-month period of time, and I was proving him wrong. And I was right. He was wrong. And then one Friday in June of 1975, I went out and got on that bus one more day. And I sat down on this huge wad of chewing gum. All over, and I was in a wool suit. Have you ever? And it just was. And I got off the bus halfway up Wilshire Boulevard, and I went into this service station in the men's room and tried to clean the gum off my trousers with a wet paper towel. I don't know. And it just went all down the leg, and it got to be this disgusting mess. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror of this, you know, I was in a three-piece suit with a vest and a shirt and a tie and black socks and no pants and a paper towel in this hand. I looked like something out of a very bad porno movie, you know, <laughs> just, just most grotesque. I was two years and eight months sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a graduate of an Ivy League university. I live in a mission on Skid Row in Los Angeles. I didn't know anybody in AA doing as poorly as me. Not ever anywhere. Anywhere. And I mean, how does this be? How can this happen? 
And I thought, I might as well drink. The only thing that will save me from... And I'm praying and I'm saying this prayer. I'm doing everything I'm asked to do. And my life is just grotesque. And I thought, well, maybe if I can... I won't drink if I sit in a movie. I'll go to the movies. And so I got back on the bus with chewing gum all over my pants. And I rode to the end of the line in Santa Monica to the ocean. And I... Uh, there was this cafeteria where you go in and get a tray and go get food and get your lunch. And I had enough money for lunch and a movie. And I got the tray, got my lunch, set it down outside to get an L.A. Times, and the busboy took my tray. My lunch. That's funny. <laughs> and, I th- and I had enough money to walk over to the UCLA campus to, uh, to go to the movies. And I thought, I'll sit in the movie. And I, and I walked over there and, uh, to the Bruin Theater, and the, the movie was The Godfather 2. Is the movie just out, brand new, and I stood in line to buy a ticket, and someone called my name, and I turned around and came face to face with the administrator of the medical center, in which I had been arrested in for stealing the Demerol, using the Demerol. And he looked at me and he said, "Vince," he said, "You look terrific." He said, "Where have you been?" And I said, "Well, I'm sober for two years in AA." And he said. Oh, my God, he said, it's so, that is wonderful. And he started to cry, and he put his arms around me. He said, we were so worried about you. And it's just tremendous, and you look so good. And uh, he said, when have you worked last? Are you working? I said, I haven't worked in a long time. I said, my license is gone. He said, yeah. He said, well, he said, this is remarkable. We have a urologist that's joined the group practice who's a member of the Medical Quality Assurance Board. And he's just joined our practice, and uh, he'll be in the clinic tomorrow on Saturday seeing patients and uh, I'm going to call him, and I want to have you and I to have lunch with him, and we're going to ask him if he can help you get your license back. And if he can, how would you like to go back to work in the emergency room? And we went down there the next day, and I met this urologist, and he wrote some letters, and within 60 days, my medical license was restored in the state of California, and I went back to work in the very same emergency room in which I was arrested in for stealing the Demerol. And I worked there as a PA for the next two and a half years, and during that period of time, No drugs were missing, and the patients got excellent care. And I had an opportunity to make amends. And I took these steps, 1 through 12, precisely as they're outlined in this book. And if you're new, you must do this if you are to get better. And these steps, incidentally, are precisely what they say they are. They're nothing different. They don't need any special interpretation. You don't need a six-day retreat to find out how to take these steps. You simply must do them. They need no interpretation. They are what they say they are. Moral inventory. The word moral is not there by mistake. It's not a psychological inventory. It's not designed to get you in touch with your feelings. It is designed for you to tell us your secrets. And if you do, you are free. You are free. And yes, you must pay the money back. You are not number one on your amends list. As a matter of fact, you're not even on it. Everybody else is. That's what I discovered going through these steps with this sponsor, this crazy sponsor. I wasn't allowed to have, I talked about it earlier, wasn't allowed to have a checking account. You used to have to get money orders to pay back $30,000 that was all due tomorrow. Uh, And we paid them back. And... uh, I did this, and I took these steps, and and my life began to flourish. And it isn't to say I haven't made mistakes. I've made every mistake you can make. In 1976, I met this cute little redhead, and uh, 
I met her in uh, September. Uh, we got married in October and divorced in November. <laughs> that is a mistake. And the last time I saw her, she was on the way back to her daddy's ranch in El Dorado, Texas. <laughs> so they're haunting me. And time went on, but I didn't drink and I didn't run. And in 1975, uh, Pat got sober and her husband was dying of lung cancer. And I watched her take care of him and get sober at the same time. And we became friendly uh, not long after that. And... Uh, we fell in love and we got married. And I, by that time, I had gone into a new profession because all of the jobs for PAs were at night. And uh, in those days, not the profession it is now. And uh, I went into a new profession in counseling, vocational rehabilitation counseling. And uh, I was just starting my practice and we didn't have any money. And uh, we got married in an AA wedding in this AA's backyard. And uh, the women brought the food and uh, it was wonderful. And we didn't have any money at all. I mean, we didn't have any money. We had to wait till everybody left so we could open the envelopes to see if we could go anywhere. And it turned out we could. There was enough money to go to Knott's Berry Farm, which is where we went on our honeymoon. And we had a one-day honeymoon, so we had to go to work on Monday morning, both of us, and we did. And uh, we've been married for 26 years. Last year, we had our 25th wedding anniversary. And thank you. Thank you. And we talked about where we'd like to go to celebrate our wedding anniversary, and we thought, well, we should go to Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> then we thought better of it, and we thought, oh, no, let's go to Paris. <laughs> and we did. And we did. And our life is, I mean, I can't tell you how grateful I am to be with you and to be part of this action here and to be in the marriage with this wonderful, wonderful woman who I love with all my heart. Uh, you can't, if you know anything at all about me, to say I've been married 26 years to the same woman is, oh, he, my God. My family still is aghast. They can't, they can't believe this. But, by the way, I, I am a respected patriarch of that family now. All my nieces and everybody calls me for advice and counsel. And, uh, and I'll tell you one other thing. That pregnant first wife had that baby and gave it up for adoption and... Uh, I was too drunk to do anything about it, and it was a terrible thing. And I, when I was sober eight years, I hired a private investigator, and uh, he found her, this girl who was raised by wonderful people and had great parents. And we had an adoption psychologist uh, call her and ask her if she wanted to talk to me. And she said she did. And we talked, and I flew to Florida, and uh, we went to dinner. It was an awkward uh, difficult thing to do we you know it wasn't it was hard for me it was hard for her but we've talked on the telephone ever since all the time and so uh, last week we talked and uh, we developed a relationship and she asked me if I would like to come to Kansas City and meet my grandchildren and I'm going and uh, our life has been magnificent uh, we've had uh, we've had our ups and downs. We've had our bad breaks. Who hasn't? Uh, that's part of life. It has nothing to do with sobriety. There's been, uh, but never with each other. Uh, never with each other. We've had. God, I was in. I had my own counseling, vocational counseling firm, and made a huge amount of money. And we had big homes in Pasadena and Mercedes and BMWs. And then they changed the law, and my income went from several a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to thirty thousand in one year. That's a drop. <laughs> I celebrated that with a heart attack. Yeah. 
bypass surgery, we had to sell the house at the bottom of the market, owed the government 100 grand. All the things that happened to you happened to us. Uh, three years ago, I got diagnosed with colon cancer, almost three and a half years ago now, and that was frightening. And and uh, I never had any symptoms, and they caught it early and operated on it, and, and everything looks great, but I had to take prophylactic chemotherapy, and the chemo almost killed me. I had staph pneumonia. I was in the intensive care unit at the City of Hope for the month of February 2004 on six liters of oxygen. They didn't think I was ever going to function without oxygen again, and it was a scary time, and we didn't think I was going to live. I didn't. was sure I wasn't. I knew too much and knew I wasn't going to live. And uh, but something happened. I, I would wake up in the middle. Pat had to work. We we were broke, and she had to go to work, and uh, and and she couldn't be there 24 hours a day. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night and uh, ICU, and you know who'd be there? Alanons. Alanons. And I love Alanons. And they would be coming at me with a glass of Insure. If an Al-Anon comes at you with a glass of Insure, you will drink it. I promise you. But they loved us and they took care of us. And I got better, clearly. And for a guy who they said would, uh, would probably need oxygen the rest of his life, uh, I do 45 minutes a day on the life cycle on level 9 and 10. I wanted to call the oncologist and say, how, how long do you go? But uh, I'm better, and our life is better. And I'm 65 year, years old and went back to work at a huge job six months ago, making a lot of money. I mean, how can this be? I thought I was going to die, and now I'm back working, and things are great. And so I'm going to close. I'm just going to tell you one thing. I want to talk to you who are new and young and male. I've got some advice for you that I hope you take. Women are not the enemy. They are your loving, equal partners in every way. They are to be loved and to be cherished and listened to. And it took me a long time to discover that, but I have. And if you know it now, your life will be magnificent. You'll save yourself years of untold grief <laughs> if you can do this now. So thank you for inviting me to Hilton Head and hoo -ah! <laughs>